We've had the same technology for the last 50 years in planting and seeding. We have air seeders and we have planters, on the, especially in the Midwest side that's coming north here. And both, but they have limitations that are going to hurt in the long term if we don't find a way to adapt and to get those increased yields that we're going to need to feed a growing world. Welcome to the Growing the Future podcast, where our future is always bigger than our past. Being in the business of growing food for the world is a massive challenge, not for the faint of heart. Join us, the Aberhart Brothers, as we talk to progressive folks who like to innovate, collaborate, transform the agricultural landscape. If you want to cultivate a growth mindset in agriculture, then let's get growing our future together. Hey now, Dan Aberhart here, today's host of the Growing the Future podcast. Welcome to season four, episode two. You can sign up for our newsletter, growingthefuturepodcast.ca to get emails about our new episodes and find all of our past episodes there. Make sure to give us a follow on all the social media platforms and you can find all of our episodes on our YouTube channel. You can also find the Aberhart family companies online, starting with aberhartfarms.com to learn more about our farming operation in Saskatchewan. Suregrowth.ca to learn more about the precision agronomy consulting services offered there. ConvergenceGrowth.com, Warren Bills, and my brother, where they accelerate solutions across food, health, and agriculture. And last but not least, AberhardEggSolutions.ca, where we deliver one-of-a-kind fertility solutions of the future to your farm. My next guest is the COO of Clean Seed Capital. They are a public company, CSX.V. I hope I got that right that's ready to commercialize the next evolution in seeding technology, the Smart Seeder Max S. So what's fun about our next guest is that I have a history with this individual, and he actually got me going in the sales business over two decades ago. So thank you for that. It's been an awesome journey. He's a very educated individual, a Bachelor of Science in Mechanized Agriculture from the U of S, and a Master of Business Admin in Ag Economics from the University of Guelph. You can find him on LinkedIn or Clean Seed website, www.cleanseedcapital.com. Today, we're going to talk about his professional journey in the industry, in equipment business, very storied career, how this piece of equipment is the next best evolution in seeding technology, and the company's entrepreneurial journey, sort of the hero's journey. How do you go from startup over a decade ago to bringing something to the market that I think is going to be fairly common out in the fields of maybe not just the prairies of Western Canada, but hopefully the world. I think they have big ambitions. Welcome to the show, Mr. Colin Rush. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. You said, hey, it's two decades ago since we, we met and I just uh, realized now how old we are. So <laughs> thanks for uh, pointing that out. Hopefully wiser. And it's so funny to think about you coming on the show because I remember sitting in the Russell Inn having um, parlay with yourself and Jeff Noel that's, that's and right. David Hyde at the time. I, th I feel like you guys hired me largely because I was Harvey's son who was managing Russell at the time. <laughs> we'll, we'll give this kid a chance. And I remember how how nervous and excited I was, but that's really what started my whole career, agriculturally speaking, to get to where I am today. So I appreciate that. And you were 
you're a John Deere rep at the time. You're this uh, big wig kind of suit and tie guy. And tell us a little bit about your professional career in equipment and how you came to be at the helm of a public company that's about to change the seating industry. Yeah. And you look back and I think time definitely speeds things up because uh, the 90s don't seem like that 25 plus years ago uh, that that really when we're talking about age. But I guess that makes us, I guess, the veterans in the industry now. But what was interesting is I didn't intend to get into agriculture, even though I grew up on a farm here in just about an hour and a half north of Saskatoon. It was one of those farms that didn't really have room for the, the one of the sons to come back and help out with the cattle and the few acres that we did in mixed grain. So right out of uh, university, actually, I decided and, and joined the military, actually. So uh, right out of high school, I should say. So I think I finished my last exam. And three days later, I was on a plane to basic training, officer training in British Columbia. So it's been a great journey. I always knew I wanted to do something in leadership and to lead that. And the Canadian Armed Forces were a great start to that. And then you get into the, those early 90s where they were offering buyouts and basically reducing the armed forces. And that gave me the opportunity to go back to University of Saskatchewan and to apply for agriculture and, and on the mechanized agriculture side. And that's really where I found my passion to say this equipment and this path of a mechanized agriculture rep that is, it's not quite an engineer, but you're not an agronomist. And you really are the interaction between communicating what, what those farmers and agronomists want and turning it into uh, actions. As I look and I would joke with my wife, I'm probably one of the few people that took something in university or college and you're directly still doing the exact thing that you, you took in university. I've never lost the passion for that. So is that the language that you can speak? Like you're, you're kind of the interface now between <laughs> the engineers and the farmer solution? Yeah, I mean, we go through different areas of it where some is more on the business side. It's that true sales side, which say there's a select portfolio of equipment that, that you want to get. But sometimes, in, in especially later in my career, especially with some of the OEMs, I got to a point where we started to translate that feedback that we were getting from customers of what they wanted to see into next generation machines. And what was interesting is if you understand OEM equipment, most of their profits, most of their sales, and, and uh, frankly, a lot of their focus is based on tractors and combines and enhancing those. That's where they make all their money. That's where they, they put all their focus, their assets are, are there. Those are, are two, two big things that are, are needed on every farm. But the innovation side is not usually in those areas. Like if you think about spraying technology, all the exciting things that are happening with sea and spray technology and planting and seeding in, in data and sensors. This is, I think, where a lot of the innovation is. And in fact, it's based on necessity. We, if we look at Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, Alberta, we've had this necessity that we've been leaders in seeding technology. And not because I think Saskatchewan or Alberta or Manitoba is, is extra special and we, we have more innovative people, but we've done it out of necessity. We've had these 120 frost-free days, which have been these this you know, this limitation to say, hey, if we're going to grow more crops and we, we mechanically have to put down seed and fertility, what things can we do to make that better, faster, more precise, grow a bigger crop? And so necessity is that they say is the mother of invention. And that's exactly, I think, where it's come. But farmers, maybe this, and I don't think this is probably going to be a, a huge uh, re uh, revelation to any of your listeners, which is Farmers are the ones that basically create the innovation or they create the idea. Certainly companies fall through and help refine those ideas into products, but John Deere doesn't create innovation. CNH Industrial doesn't create innovation. They're basically taking those ideas that, uh, that are out there. Some are patents, some are just ideas, 
Some of them are just acquiring companies that have those ideas and they're, they're down the path of refining them. And so I spent a lot of years, a lot of my years working with the OEM side, but then you do realize that innovation isn't being pushed. They're like the automotive sector is they're not going to change things unless they have to. So companies don't come out with innovation unless there's a profitable reason to bring it out on the OEM side. They want to, they've invested in tooling, they've invested in all these things that basically they want to get the longest production run that they can because that's the most profitable for the shareholders. But innovative companies like Shortlines that always have to go against the big guys, they're the ones that are truly trying to innovate because they're trying to capture more of the market. They're trying to give it that next best idea, that next best return out there that can do. And this has been an area now that I've worked into to saying, look, if we're going to do something out there rather than just work for an egg company, let's create something that is going to make a, a measured disruptive impact in the value a producer gets in, in the planting and seeding operation. Because essentially we've had the same technology for the last 50 years in planting and seeding. We have air seeders. And yes, there's been refinements and we have planters on the, especially in the Midwest side that's coming north here and both work very well. We, we plant millions and millions of acres of crop, especially in North America with them, but they have limitations that are going to hurt in the long term if we don't find a way to adapt and to get those increased yields that we're going to need to feed a growing world. Man, I love how you frame that. I was always thinking that all that seeding innovation happened in Saskatchewan just because we're special, but the way you frame it is actually really realistic and I would say factual and I never recognized that before. So that makes me think about the differences that you would have experienced at the leadership level from equipment dealerships, right? That was a big part of your career to working with these OEMs. I'm kind of wondering as you transition to essentially a startup, you said you, you joined full-time in 2017, but you were enjoy. You were involved in 2012, 2013-ish. What did you want to bring to the table from the equipment dealer level and the OEM level? And what did you want to leave behind going into the startup? You know, one of the things that I looked at is customer focus meetings are kind of this, this key thing. And I don't care if you're, in, if you're in seeds, you're in fertilizer. You want to take the pulse of really your customer base. One of the things that I, I got really frustrated about with the OEMs is... Case IH is a great one. We'd go to Montana, we'd go to Southern Alberta, Southern Saskatchewan, we'd sit down with 10 or 15 producers in a room and we'd, we'd get a blank sheet of paper and they'd say, here's our existing product line in seeding or tillage or, or planting and, and what would you like to see? And producers have great visions of what they want because they, they see the value if you can have equipment that can do things that they currently can't do on their farm. And you'd write everything down and you'd get so energized and, and excited about what these producers wrote down and they'd say, okay, can you, make the, can you make the openers look like this and do these things and can you do this and can you put in new software that does all these things? And you'd take this list back and this was the list and help us to refine really the next generation of product and you take it back to your engineers with your assigned budget that you get for the OEM and planting and seeding and and planting and seeding especially, spraying was a little bit better, but it was kind of like the ugly cousin of combines and tractors. Is you Basically, the scraps that kind of rolled off the table is what you, you got to invest into planting and seeding just because it wasn't a tractor combine. We'd take this list back and say there was 100 things on the list, and you'd take it to the engineering staff with your budget, and they'd say, okay, there's 100 things here. We can give you five of them. It's going to take 
twice as long as the 18 months that you wanted to, and it's going to cost double your budget. And that kind of, it really kind of hits you to say, well, it, it was really, it wasn't the ability for us to engineer any of these things or overcome any of these issues. It was the political will within some of these OEMs to say, is planting and seeding just good enough right now? We don't need to change. Let's pour our money into emissions on tractors. Let's pour our money into a new cab that has a vibrating massaging seat <laughs> or, or whatever it is. Yeah. The beer and, holder. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. But <laughs> the issue is, is it's funny that planting and seeding, if you think about this in that there's all of these technologies from data to drones to see and spray you're talking about to harvest, keeping to reduce harvest uh, losses by going faster and faster, some of the new combine technologies out there. But 100% of your yield potential starts with the planting and fertility application in a single pass. And everything that you have from there starts to detract. So if you have a drought, moisture is going to detract from them. If you have pests, weed infestations, hail, everything else. We're still using 50-year-old technology to put that seed and fertility in the ground. We're, we're, we're treating it, especially in Western Canada, like this broad breast approach because air seeders have been really good to us. They've allowed us to get all those acres per day out, but they really haven't changed how, and they're, they're just not precise. And that's not, we're talking about data that becomes actionable out there. That's really not the future of where we need to go. We need more precision, not less. And the technology is just fundamentally limiting. And so that was where, with Clean Seed, the Smart Seeder, the, this, this notion that we could become this printer right above the row and print out exactly what is required by the seed and by that plant on a plant level basis, which was an incredible concept. It's just taken a little bit longer than we, we would have liked, but we're, we're definitely here and we've arrived to commercialization. So. Why are these OEMs not investing in seeding like? spraying and tractors and combines is it just pure numbers and is that purely the impetus to start or this, this company is this this huge gap of like do you start out with the concept of printing seeding yeah i mean it's not a small market if you look at seeding and planting just in north america alone i saw some numbers here worldwide it's over a 20 billion dollar business to 28 billion dollar business for planting and seeding technologies worldwide in north america which i would say was kind of the more advanced planting and seeding, we, we definitely push the limits of some of the newer technologies here. So if you think about, is it a big enough market for you to invest in? Absolutely, it, it is, right? And we always had this kind of this neat thing at, at Case IH, which is if you're a John Deere customer, it's very hard for anybody else to get in there because the John Deere dealer takes very good care of those customers. There's a reason why they have upwards of 40, 50, 60% market share in most areas. And it's, it's not just exclusively their product line, it's how well they take care of things. So when I was with Case IH, we had this notion to say, if you're gonna get into a John Deere customer yard, you're not gonna do it in the trenches with a combine or a tractor. There wasn't enough variation or differentiation between your unit and a John Deere unit that would really, unless there was price that came up, which always got you into trouble. But if you look at what I call the agronomic value things, so things like planters, things like seeders, things like sprayers, those are the things that can make a huge difference in your crop, both from your, your yield, your losses, and, and really your potential for, for income for the year. So we would go in with things like sprayers, things like planter technology, and we wouldn't convince the customer based on, oh, it's green, it's red. They would come and say, let's show you in your operation what this can do for you. I never forgot that concept of saying, it doesn't matter 
getting into a, a planter versus cedar versus this is this many dollars and this is this many dollars, this competitive model. If you're in that area, you're into a commodity and, and it's an undifferentiated commodity. And there is a business case for those types of businesses, but they're not on the innovation side. And you're probably not going to be successful as a company if you pursue that. So you, you have to do things different. You have to appeal to your end customer that essentially says, look, I buy a, a seeding, seeding technology every five years. And guess what? It hasn't changed in the last 15. So why am I keep buying them? And uh, they do the exact same job they did before. And I, maybe I should just work on upgrading it. So if we can offer something that they've never had the capabilities to do before, that's where we get into this tremendous ROI on here by bringing capabilities value that really producers have never had access to before. This morning I watched your video release Earth on the Edge and you guys went from connecting the Mulberg plow back in the day from John Deere to all the things that the soil does and all the situations that have caused soils to deteriorate globally for a very long time. And we've had some degree of correction with zero till and, and more understanding about soil health and whatnot. But it seemed as though you guys are positioning this squarely as the next evolution that's going to make a really big difference in, in seeding and soil and profitability. I mean, take us there. Tell us why this is such a big, <laughs> according to the, watching this video, I'm like, wow, this is a bigger deal than just the planter being built in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Well, I think there's a couple parts to it. One is education. People don't realize that they need something else unless you can educate them there. So, so Earth on the Edge was a, our kind of a first in a series of what will be documentaries to try to educate both agriculture people, that whether you're in farming or you're in the, the support industry on, on that side, but also non-ag people about investment in the space and technology. Earth on the Edge was really designed for us to say, okay, machinery that you know is put in place, whether it's 100 years ago or 50 years ago, still has a measured impact of what you see out there today. And it's got us here. If you look back at the, the, the dirty 30s, we talked about conservation tillage, we talked about the use of fertilizer. All of these things have helped feed the evolution of the planet. But if we look at how we're going to continue to do that, how are we going to do things like build organic matter, uh, which is directly related to carbon sequestration, as we know, how do we get into things like fertilizer efficiency? All of these things are leading to having a discussion that is, it brings you down to, is there better ways of doing things than really air seeder technology? And yes, Western Canada, if you look at where you and I grew up in that 80s, the 90s there, we kind of always chuckled these, these maximum tillage guys, the guys that would still make it black. And there's still the odd guys. I, I go towards the Tisdale country and I, I just kind of rolled my eyes still yeah. a little bit. But we've done a pretty good job on that. But if you look at the U.S. and really the rest of the market worldwide, there's a massive tillage epidemic still going on. And some of that is, is, is based on how we plant and seed. So the smart seeder technology was based on this evolution on really changing three things. One was that we would change the way that we interact with the ground. So if you think about traditional air seeders, you usually have a shank. You're pulling a piece of metal through the ground that has an opener on it, or you have a disc. So a flat disc that's basically cutting open a furrow and you're, you're putting seed in your, and then you're packing it on here. Or if in a planter technology, it's a double disc with a little frog in the middle that's, that's creating an open furrow that you can seed. 
So those were kind of the three, you know, different technologies, either a disc drill or it was an air hole drill or it was a, a double disc planter. So all of those three things had some benefits. Obviously, with a shank machine, you got some, if it can get it into the ground, if it wasn't too uh, hard, you got pretty good defined uh, separation. You got a furrow that could accept both fertility at different depth and a seed, and then you'd close that that back up. But in, in high organic material where maybe you chopped off the combine and you had a really good crop the year before, you're going to be proning unless that, that really rots down, that material is going to basically start raking on there. Discs are really good in, especially with heavy clay areas, that, that Red River Valley that you guys see, Manitoba, North Dakota, because they're, they're not really penetrating and hooking up big chunks of mud or, or, or big chunks of clods of dirt. But they also hairpin material into the soil. So now we're having an issue where if you're having material in the bottom of the furrow, you're not getting seed soil contact. And planters basically are just not designed unless they've got row cleaners to do any high no-till type of area. So if you look at these three types of openers, there was a way we needed to do something different. So if you see the Smart Seeder Max, we have this thing that looks exactly like a saw blade. It's a sawtooth coulter. It's this massive blade here. And it is designed exactly to act like a saw blade. So instead of dragging uh, a shank through the, the soil and creating a furrow, or a flat disc that's basically trying to open up a furrow, but basically it's not cutting the material as much as pushing it into it where we get hairpinning and lack of seed soil contact. We're actually cutting and we're parting the material. So you think about a surgeon's scalpel that's going through a mat of pea stubble, lentils, heavy cereals. We're basically, we're cutting and we're parting and we're basically opening up that furrow to accept our three quarter inch carbide tip that runs below it. So the, the carbide tip, after we open up this furrow, we basically have a small, basically trench now that we can follow with a three quarter inch carbide tip. It actually fractures the soil with the carbide uh, tip. So now we're actually down to that three, three and a half inch. We're going through the compacted plow pan layer and we're fracturing and we're aerating the soil with the three quarter inch carbide tip. We've got these little wings that kind of sit on the side of our opener. Those are called bio wings. It's almost a lateral fracturing type of thing. So if you think about pushing things under the soil, we're actually doing kind of tillage, aeration, and fracturing underneath the, the soil without having the massive soil explosion you'd see with a shank ripper going down four inches. So now we have, we've cut and we've parted the soil, we've fractured and aerated the soil. So now we put fertility down deep. Basically the soil flows back over it. Uh, we have two seed ports that come out and we can basically put the seed on it. And then instead of a packing wheel that is on row packing, it's very much like a planter where we're basically having two closing wheels bring the furrow back over. So when you look at the, the, the column of furrow, is, is one is instead of having just a, a small shape where the furt knife and a seed knife have basically scraped and, and sealed the bottom of the furrow, or a disc that's basically carved out a furrow and a furrow ledge, again, sealed the bottom of the furrow. We actually have this U-shaped thing because we've done this lateral fraction with these wings. And the whole column of soil from the fertility at the bottom, soil, seed, and then soil again is loose. So in a very dry year, in a very wet year, Les Henry's often talking about these guys that got an inch of rain and you grew a 60 bushel wheat crop on an inch of rain. Well, well no, you didn't grow it on a, an inch of rain. You accessed the water table to do it. By having that column of soil that is loose, 
we have tremendous pore space that allows that basically water table to percolate up as well as the rain to come in there. And we see things just like amazing root emergence on here. We see a huge advance in, in getting ahead of the crop on here. And, and that's just the opener technology, and that's one, one big part of it. So it was changing the way we go through the soil, changing the way that we, we basically bring the seed. We don't need that seed soil contact where we're basically hammering that seed into a furrow that's sealed already, and we're basically cutting off all the oxygen, all the pore space, and the ability for it to access water from below. What we're doing is that very loose column of soil is basically promoting that, and if you've ever been in your mother's garden uh, or grandmother's garden where you want to pat the seeds down and you get your hands slapped, well, that, that's where I knew about you don't have to push the seeds in, in that hard. Wow. So that was really kind of the first basis of our technology. And that's actually where the technology began was with this notion that there was a better way in no-till to basically cut, fracture, aerate that soil and put the seed and the fertility in a very loose column of soil. I well, hope you guys gave uh, some credit to your mother's garden on the patent somewhere. Yeah, we there. did, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, But it sounds like you've taken a lot of good feedback from producers and implemented it, like you said, but putting on my farmer's hat, it's, yeah. it appears awfully sexy, but some of my initial reaction was, hey, Colin, like, this looks expensive. This looks complicated. <laughs> this looks new age. Like, I don't want to spend my seeding time on the phone with your tech. Like, yeah. there's got to be a lot of objections. Like, tell me... What is this going to do for me? The opener is just that. It's it's an opener. It's like, it's a disc opener. It has bearings, it has bushings. We have carbide on, on our opener. So from the opener standpoint, there, there's not a, a lot of difference in maintenance and adjustments uh, that you'd see there. The, the true part of it is getting into what we call metering over top of the row. So every single row on a smart seeder is a five product, variable rate, multi-product seeder. So instead of having six different control points that would be on an air cart or eight or however many sections you have based on the, what you're trying to meter out, we're essentially printing that material right over top of the row with basically an electric motor. It's a stepper motor. So we have 300 different control points on it. So you talk about what's simple, what's complex. From the opener down, after we basically meter those things down, it's gravity all the way down. So we're not using air to get in there. We don't have air bounce. We don't have all these things here. So the simplicity is getting back to think about box drills, think about discers. We've never had better distribution than we when we use those seed distribution than we use those products before because we weren't using air to force it into that. The unit itself is designed to bring product on demand over top of the rows, and that's all the rest of the supporting thing is the cart. The frame, all it is, is replaces the amount of product that is metered out individually, row by row. And because you're row by row, every row knows where it is, so you've got built-in turn compensation. You've got row by row shutoff of all products. And the ability, because you have 300 different control points, is if a meter goes down, you literally pop it off and put another one in and plug it in. If there's a row not working, you can make it a 58-row plant uh, seeder, you know, instead of a 60-row seeder. So the ability for customers to do things without tools and to have layer upon layer of redundancy that's built into the cedar was something that we, we looked at. And there, there's one kind of last thing that, that was really neat is because we can meter everything over top of the row and we use gravity, we can actually direct things out in a different port. So we have a triple shot opener, but we can actually direct things out into a paired row, side band, deep band. 
So we're really the first seeder that only micromanages that printer over top of the row of these products. We can actually change where that fertility goes in relation to the seed in just a second adjustment on the machine. So we're given capabilities that have never been pushed before, and that allows you to do things row by row. You could do, as a seed grower, you can do male and female plants side by side with their own fertility needs. You can do canola pea lentil, all with its own fertility with intercropping. You can do cover cropping. And all of these things, because every row is a five-product independent seeder, allows you to basically become the ultimate multi-tool or Swiss army tool to, to get things put in the ground. And yes, it is a premium unit for sure. It, it's definitely at the top of the premium air seeders and planters out there, but it's just a hair premium. It's designed to give you more value than you've ever seen before in any type of equipment. Awesome. No, I was actually surprised when I heard in the presentation that your price point wasn't 30, 50% higher. And then you're trying to make this up by using less seed and less fertilizer and saying, well, it's more overhead per acre, but it's less inputs. I'm, I'm kind of glad you guys didn't take, take that approach because that's sometimes a leap of faith that's hard for the farmer to justify. And then it very much is the yeah. onus is on you three yeah. years in, you best be saving X amount on seed and, 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 and superior germination and more, more accurate fertilizer placement. But one of the really interesting things that I saw that you guys were touting on one of your corporate presentations with your chairman and CEO there was the graphic of all the agronomists that you were affiliated with or had worked with or had referred to and Jeff Shano and Garth Donaldson and, you know, various other agronomists are plugged into this. This month, uh, I thought, I think I saw Beyond Agronomy on there. Those, these guys got to be super excited because it, it's sort of an agronomist wet dream to be able to do all these different pieces. And people have attempted it, but you know what they look like? They look like something broke because they're at the side of the field trying to get these five things to work. And, and eventually everybody's, you know, one pass Burgo and we're done. But this must be an agronomist wet dream. Well, it, it, it is. And even to the Borgo guys uh, or, or any of the guys out there, look, there was a time before everything worked that it didn't work. Right. So I, I, <laughs> having been at the side of the field for years and years and years, I feel a certain amount of affiliation with, with those guys as we get through it. That being said, when you're trying to change things and not just give people a 2% improvement in something, a 5% improvement, all of a sudden they're saying is, what would you like to do? Oh, you want to do foot by foot resolution uh, agronomy. And, and yes, maybe there's no agronomic or value benefit for me to assign foot by foot grids in your field right now. Okay. Guess what? You don't have to do that, but the machine is capable of doing that. I was given the example the other day, Dan said that if you wanted to take a half mile by half mile field, that 160 acre field, if you were going to take every row foot by foot and every five, what are the, out of the five products and change those every foot by foot, every row, in a 160-acre field, that'd be 1.2 billion changes you were asking the seeder to execute in terms of rate changes, row by row, foot by foot, product by product. And most displays and current equipment would literally melt down trying to process that type of prescription. It would also melt down in trying to give you that as applied data as you, as you go through it. But we built the, this system for agronomists to push the boundaries of things they've never done before. Now, we may, maybe we're not going to do it for canola, but it might be done for corn. We're getting into the point where we're getting not only foot by foot where you can, you know, look at that, that plant stand that came up, singulation, canola seed or, or corn by corn, but getting down to what was the fertility that went with that plant on that foot. 
And this is where we're getting into, does your data have actions associated right. with it? You know, it's great that we're collecting data. It's fantastic. And, and that, <laughs> but, but what are you going to do with it? Yep. Right. If there isn't a machine out there that can really give you any action other than making you feel depressed about, oh, yeah, geez, that didn't come up or, or looked that great because there wasn't water there. Or we couldn't access it or whatever it was. This is really one of the first tools out there that in a meaningful manner gives you 100 percent. It really moves the bar on that 100 percent yield potential that you start with when you plant and seed. Everything else after that detracts on here, conditions, disease, weed on here. And we just haven't changed that 100% for years and years and years. So from the agronomy standpoint is we, we say, well, what would you like to do? Oh, you want to do intercropping in a single pass? Fine, done, great. What rates? What depth? Oh, you want your plant grower that you want to have male and female plants? Sure, done. Oh, you want to just, you want to do variable width corn? So it's a 12 inch cedar, but I want to do 36 inch corn. Great. We'll just lock up every two rows. Now it is a 36 inch row planter that you have in between. It's literally designed to take the place of two or more machines that are out there in the field today. Well, it makes me reflect on your environmental and social governance. Any company that's yeah. relatively newborn on planet Earth, public companies got to be looking at that green sector. It looks like this might be a tool to impact the amount of fertilizer we use, where we put it, the amount of seed yields, getting more. I believe one of the most environmentally friendly things we can do is get more output from any given output. 100%. We've talked about ESG, which is great. I mean, we've got this this industry in Canada that's talking about carbon credits or in the US and it's a real we're in the messy middle right nobody knows how they're going to trace it nobody knows who's paying what cover crop well that's nine dollars an acre if, if you did cover crops we're not paying you before like it's so the industry's sorting itself out on here but we do know this is minimizing the amount of passes across the field is a good thing right if you can get to the organic matter we, we don't release that that soil trap carbon as much if we can build that organic matter we know that for our nutrient stewardship, the four hours of fertility, if we can reduce the inefficiencies we have, especially in nitrogen fertilizer, where we don't have, where we're gassing off into uh, nitrous oxide, that's a huge uh, thing. So if we can basically put a product exactly where it is in the furrow, based on your soil type, your soil conditions on here, and you and as an agronomist can direct it out, not just at the rates you want, but in relation to where it goes to the seed in the furrow, what does that do for you? So I think we, we're we just starting to talk about the practices, but in practices, sometimes operations, oh, my fertility, oh, my truck only holds three different types of fertilizer. How can I put a, a fourth one out there? I need to blend it. And, and we're really talking about saying, hey, this unit will blend it in the furrow on the fly at the rates you want, because blend in relation to across a field not everything requires things, and even if you increase it or decrease it in the same amounts. So the ESG side of things is what I like to say. Is it's a nice to have right now, and this unit does it better than any of them. But it wasn't our primary concern about doing it. It was reducing things like erosion, like you saw in Earth on the Edge, the documentary. Those things just naturally give you, I think, will give you some feedback and, and some possible some income down the road. But those are just extras, I like to say. We're not going actively after the market. It just happens to do it. So, <laughs> so if I buy one of these, where's the bottleneck now? Is this is this a blank canvas without a, a painter? Like, who's going to be able to actually implement this on day one, 2022? 
Yeah. So, I mean, production right now, we've just started, we've set up two new assembly facilities here in Saskatoon. We're very different. We're not, we're not a manufacturer as much as an assembly of, of ag technology. Okay. So we have partners that we come in that help us build our frames, our tanks, and we basically bring those units in here. We apply all of our sensors, all the metering, all the air systems, and we're the last people to touch them as they as they go out to the customer. But that being said, is just getting ramped up here. Construction was behind as usual. Supply chain is behind as usual yeah. on here. So our ramp up in production is pretty quick. That being said, is is we're only human and we're subject to the same things on here. So we're working through a supply chain. And I think I mentioned before, our contingency plans have contingency plans on there as we, we try to get the maximum amount of these units out here. We know... What's interesting about the Smart Seater Max is we've had just incredible amounts of interest from dealers and, and dealers who will be our future dealers here in, in the U.S. and in Canada. But going back to a Smart Seater Max is, is a one-row unit. All the technology that makes a Smart Seater basically unique is in a single row. So we're actually sending units out in smaller versions, four-row units here as proof of concepts heading into emerging markets like India that we're going into. Actually, there's a machine that'll be on its way here just uh, in the next couple of weeks to to test it. And they have huge environmental issues associated with crop production. They're still using flood irrigation. They're essentially rototilling their fields before they, they get in there. They don't have the technologies and they, and they haven't even got into how do we use fertilizer efficiency other than throwing it on top of the ground. So I think we almost surprised ourselves with the scope globally of, of what the Smart Seater uh, can bring. And the Smart Seater Max in its current configuration, a 60-foot uh, machine, is really just one iteration of, of what we're going to be coming out with eventually. Well, I just think about the journey of over a decade now, bringing this to market and everything that it must take. All that grit and spit and blood and duct tape and bailing <laughs> wire and, and overcoming different things. But what is the story of the company? Why did you guys decide to go public and what's some of the hero's journey of the story of the company? So you go back actually into the 90s and a gentleman called Dr. Noel Lemprier actually started the original, I guess, the precursor to Clean Seed. And, and he was really the one that created this notion of this opener that had a, a coulter in the front and it had this fracture and this lateral fracturing that we could do it in a true no-till market. So Dr. Lemprier has turned 100 on Christmas oh, Day. Wow. He's the most fascinating individual. He still engineers for yeah. us. He was a Lancaster bomber pilot in World War II, wow. led a squadron. He uh, created the UK's first nuclear power plant. <laughs> He's basically created more patents than I've read on here. But this was his dream once he moved into agriculture was to getting into the conservation tillage moment that was in the, in the 80s, into the restoration of grass habitat into the U.S., and he created this opener. He started working with metering over top of the row. He started working on this cushion drive, this foam metering to be safe on seeds. So he started this. And you remember in the early 2000s, then he got sick. This is only 20 years ago. So then he was only 80 as, as we, we go into lad. it. But yeah, so, but his son came in, uh, Graham Lemprier, and basically decided to uh, finish his father's legacy and bring this product to market. And Graham wasn't in agriculture, but he's learned a lot. He came out with these small eight, six, eight, and 12 foot machines that uh, were going to go into emerging markets. And then slowly we started getting, figuring out that there was this large agriculture play with technology, the use of electric motors here that we could do and more. Financing anything in agriculture is tough. 
financing agriculture technology that is sandbox in Canada is almost impossible. So after Graham went, cleaned up the, the previous debts of his dad's company, secured the intellectual property around the opener on here, he went looking and said, well, well how can I capitalize this? He, he had brought a couple million dollars himself to the company to capitalize it. But he knew that if we were going to do this and we were going to make something truly disruptive, that we were going to have to think about this rather than in a private company. So in 2012, Clean Seed basically had its first public offering. And we went around to farmers in mostly southern Saskatchewan and talked about the dream of what this could become. Talked about the fact that we could apply for intellectual property and patents that would secure this, the future, while the company got on its feet to make these, these, these pieces. And we had tremendous response. So we, we did the publicly traded thing out of necessity to access capital markets. But what's interesting is 75% of our shareholders are all either insiders or farmers. We're like this privately held, publicly traded company. Really? And you can see it in our shares. I think we've got around 80 million shares out. And there might be 10 to 20,000 shares that trade in a day. So we're not, we don't have a lot of liquidity in there because everybody's just been holding on on there. Huh. So as we've needed product, so as we've needed capital to grow the company, to finance our R&D side of things here, then we've gone out to the market and, and really just in a private placement to people that we know on here. So we've done very little promotion of the stock as a, hey, this is a great company to invest in. And we're just starting to do that now, now that we have this commercialization. So we've kind of just showed up and pretty sure the OEMs keep asking, who are these yeah. people? How do they keep surviving? Where are they getting their money from? And how do they keep coming out year after year? We'll tell you what, it's through a lot of relationships, through people I know, Graham knows, uh, the street knows, and we, we have people that want to pursue this. They know what we have, they understand it. And so now we're getting to what I call the fun part, where this is getting back to your and my roots, is, is we get to sell some of these things now, which is great. So That's pretty awesome. You know. That's a great story, man. That's incredible. Good for you. I like that whole background too. I had no idea. Yeah, he's an incredible guy, and he was out in he was out at Crop Production Week here, oh, cool. walking around the show, and we brought him <laughs> in here, and we had an open house the one evening, and I think the Bushel Plus guys came in there, <laughs> yeah. and he took a group of seven of them, and he's like, yeah, let me show you around. This guy's got more energy than I do, and he, he's 100 years old. So if we're having this conversation three years from now, what has to be true for you to be successful? How many units are you looking at? Where do you want the shares to be at? What's your metrics for success? Who's going to be selling it? How many farmers are going to be using it? Shares higher is always my thing <laughs> okay. as, a, as, a, as, a, as an investor. I like investing in things that I have my hands on. So all of my capital is tied up in clean seed because I believe in, in, in the product and the, in the company. And frankly, the guy that's leading the ship on the operations side, I, I have a lot of, there's a lot of work on just on me but it's again not my first rodeo in the space i know i can navigate that both from pricing to the value and to the basically getting that up and running here so the stock is going to be naturally organic we're not going to promote the stock in a way that you see with other companies out there that this pump and dump mentality is let's get out the stock here then let's get out and then let everybody else take the the fall on here and and the value is really overstated so we're not going to over trade on the stock side of things the stock is going to be a is going to be an organic reflection of what we bring to the table and what people are saying about the both the product and the company where we see in here is we, we built the facilities here in saskatoon to do lean manufacturing one-piece workflow so we've got future growth in here for the next three to four years 
we can essentially do product where we come in here that go from this startup thing where we're making just a, a few, this limited production build of 10 to 15 units up to really getting into like the one a day type of territory is what we can do. Now that creates a, <laughs> a huge expectation on your supply chain, but but also we've, we've just hired one of the, the guys that came from automotive, being an ag, understands how to do it. So we're going to be a very different looking company that is not a it's not a seating manufacturer as much as a an assembler of technology and seating and planning new products new capabilities we, we have right now the smartest seater really on the planet we can execute down to a resolution nobody else can but now the next thing is integration of sensors so we this move towards real-time sensing real-time application dan is is where it is and we know that farming can't be put to an algorithm but certain things can be tweaked if we know moisture levels in real time and you've built your prescriptions off a five-year model and you're seeing 20 percent higher moistures in real time well Based on the soil, the soil type, you can basically increase things like nitrogen and, and that to basically get that 100% yield potential higher out there. New configurations. We're going to be bringing out next year a 48-row 15-inch machine. So people can do 15-inch soybeans and 30-inch corn. So there's going to be new products, new configuration, new capabilities, machine learning, AI. These are all things that we've started to invest in on top of the existing product line. So it's going to be an exciting couple of years. I hope to have a vacation in there somewhere <laughs> yeah. because it's been, it's been exhausting. Take some time for yourself, bro. Yeah. So you got the agronomists on board. It seems like you got the government on board. You got your shareholder, your farmer shareholders. People are really interested. Like, what are the equipment dealers saying? There's definitely politics. There's politics <laughs> in agronomy. There's politics right. in that. There, there are OEMs out there that don't want us to see, no. succeed. And part of that goes back to this innovation is they have a vested interest in not having to change things until they have to change yep. things. And if we suddenly flip that on its head, it's going to change things a lot quicker than they're ready for. And that's frankly what we're seeing. And those OEMs exhibit a tremendous amount of influence on their dealer network. Some dealers right. and, and independent dealers, they don't care. And, and we've worked with guys that have uh, high value on there. Some uh, dealers that are saying, hey, this isn't right for us because we're just happy selling what we've been selling, they're, they're going to be the followers in the industry. They're going to hang on to those air seeders until somebody shuts the lights out on it. The issue is, is we have enough dealers that are these forward thinking value because we didn't build this piece of just amazing machinery for equipment dealers. We bought it, built it for the farmers. And what we're seeing is the farmers are going to their dealers and saying, look, you need to be a dealer right. in this thing. You need to be on the inside track on this thing uh, because I want to buy one. Yep. And that's basically how we've got most of our leads here so far on the dealer side, which has been incredible. I could see that. Yeah, there's different ways 20 years later from when we started in the industry to win the hearts and minds and wallets of producers. Yeah. So you can tell your story online and you guys got thousands of views on some of your videos. That's yeah. significant, right? And you can tell your story directly to someone who can then say, look, I want this. And if you don't service this for me, I, I would go elsewhere. How long before have you already had some checks waved in your face from the big boys? Just about <laughs> all of them. At, uh, at one point or another, if we go back even in the last five years, the technology is enticing that there was a time where we thought, hey, we're going to just package this up, we'll sell it to somebody and, and away we go. But as we looked at it, and I, I had to remind our, our board and, and our, our, our CEO that 
This is in Silicon Valley. People aren't just going to pay for an app in that is, is agriculture is rooted in tradition and they don't have quite as deep a pockets as some of the other companies, whether it's pharma or healthcare or, or fintech or whatever it was. Yeah. But what we decided to do is the whole point of making this was it to bring it out to market so producers could use it. And what we found is, is most most OEM companies and short lines that were giving us offers were more interested in buying it to sit it on the shelf so right. it didn't interfere with what they were doing. We read that play pretty quickly. But what's interesting though is you look at a company like, which is, they have the SimPass system out. SimPass was this cartridge system to do really small, basically multiple product variable rate in small quantities over the top of a planter. And there was a three unit cartridge. And as SimPass went into uh, production for the planters, and they, they, this was the evolution from their something called their smart box, they started filing patents and they went, well, who's clean seed and why are they have our patent? And so they came to us and, and, and it was a very friendly discussion. So we've given them some licensing rights for the next 20 years and royalties that we get off of their systems because they needed the strength of our IP in order to go forward. So we expect more of those things as, as we get this out here. We're going to have more and more of these partnerships that, uh, they, that maybe they want to license part of the technology, they want to license all of it, or maybe they just want to build, distribute, buy uh, the Smart Seeder Maxis. So we're, we've got this multiple approach on here on, on how we leverage our intellectual property going forward. Very exciting. Much more to the story than I expected. You look over the aisle and you see an air seeder, but many, many interesting uh, parts of the story. And I, I think about your entrepreneurial journey from an entrepreneurial leadership corporate point of view. You've been in the military, you've been at the dealer level, you've been in OEM. Startup is such a fresh chance to, to bake <laughs> your core values into the cake and see them work throughout the organization. What are some of those core values that you've instilled in the company that have got you through some of the shitstorm of the last decade. When you get with larger companies, you're used to this support mechanism that there's a person that can do that. There's a person that can help create content for your presentation. There's a person that can help raise money or, or get investors in there. And then when you start up and you have a great idea, you've even got a great idea secured by patents, you realize that it is a very, very small team. And, and, and your success will base on your ability to drive it. I got to a point kind of in that early 40s of my of my age where I was just like, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable as much making big OEM or, or short line companies, big, these lots of dollars and really without bringing change in order to further agriculture, which was my lifeblood. And there's a click in your ear at some point where it says is what matters most? There's not a person working at Clean Seat today that can't be making double or triple or more than they're making today. That, that It's not about money early on. It's about your ability to, do you want to be part of something that is going to change things for decades and decades in the future? And once you make that switch, you wouldn't believe how happy you are. In fact, we, we interview people all the time and, and and one of the laugh, the things we laugh about is, is you'll never be bored because you'll never be working on the same thing twice. We're not a company that has a lot of levels. And if that involves me jumping in a tractor or coveralls or whatever it is, yeah. that's just what it takes. The core values of the companies is, if you look at our mission statement, it's to bring disruptive technologies in agriculture that basically help producers produce more with less. And, and, and it sounds like uh, it's maybe not as, as out there as feed the world, but there's a lot of people that claim that exact same mission statement, but they don't have the 
product or the company to back it up. They say, well, this is what we're doing. And we're like, well, are you really doing that? <laughs> you're, you're capturing some data. Yeah. You're trying to ram it through a platform, which there's 700 other ones just like it out yeah. there. So that's always a tough thing. But And the amount of time you spend, there's, uh, I laughed about vacation, but my, my wife's getting a little on, on me, but I haven't taken a vacation in really the last two years. And, <laughs> and this is the summer I've been told, or, or they're going to go without me. So the, the, there's sacrifices right. that you do have to do. And, and so that's tough, but we know there's a payoff coming. We've surrounded ourselves with incredible talent. I always say this is the hardest team to, to get on and, and probably the hardest team to get off of as well, because we just don't have people that, that quit or turn over. So. I can't imagine how you know instrumental it is to have that kind of culture with what you're doing and giving people purpose. Yeah. Good for you, man. Pretty exciting stuff. And yeah. I'm sure you're going to be making some waves. Disruption, looking at your company and being in conversation with you, it comes up a lot. And it's probably one of those really well used words in the industry as well. But I could see that you're quite a bit ahead. And there's many others that have left a big opening in the market for you guys to move into and innovate. And I'd love to see one on Aberhart Farms. I don't know if Terry's got a on the list for a demo or not yet. But. Well, tell Terry to give me a call. We'll <laughs> definitely do some some trials. I know he's always pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Right? And love to uh, love to get out towards Russell and, and, and get on the farms over there. So well, it's one of those things. If you can start doing what, what it's somebody like Terry as an agronomist and farmer dreams of, that's a really exciting tool, man. And no, I could see that being a good fit. So that would be exciting. Maybe we'll meet on the farm one day. And this virtual world's getting a little old. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, I'd love to meet you in person. That'd be fun. Well, man, I'm so proud of you. Like you're quite accomplished when I first met you. And now you've just continued to uh, go on in the industry and do great things. It's just great to know guys like you've done so much for the industry and just getting started, right? Like it's just going to be boots on the ground now and the fun part. So yeah. like you say, so. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to have a, a lot of fun here, especially with the, these companies that, that haven't embraced the change on there. In the immortal words of Saskatchewan, hold my beer and watch <laughs> this. this. This is exactly what we're going to do there. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. All the best. Good luck out there. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We really appreciate that you'd spend some of your valuable time with us. We would like to give a shout out to Stephen and Veronica and the whole team of Pod Sound School for their talent and hard work in editing and producing these episodes. Be sure to check them out at www.podsoundschool.com. Also, Nicole Duby from Eberhard Egg Solutions. Thank you so much. Nicole's really passionate about making these episodes come to life and sharing them with you. Please, let's stay in touch. You can communicate with us on any of the social media platforms. You can also check us out on YouTube. And sign up for our newsletter, growingthefuturepodcast.ca, so you don't miss an episode. Do not forget to check out the Aberhart family of companies online to aberhartfarms.com, suregrowth.ca, convergencegrowth.com, and aberhartagsolutions.ca. Links are in the episode notes. We would love to hear from you. Reach out and tell us what you like about the show or what we could do to improve upon this. And we will send you some free swag. Until next episode, folks, let's keep it real. Growing the future together. Oh.